Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, journalist and author, Sam Baker. We all tackle ageing in different ways, but very few of us do it the way this week's guest did, by packing up her entire life and moving thousands of miles to a new city and a new life. Until her mid-40s, writer Jamie Attenberg sofa surfed her way around America. The year she turned 40, she slept in 26 different beds in seven months. Even for the daughter of a travelling salesman, Jamie's litany of sofas, spare beds and floors is enough to give you backache. The author of seven novels, including four bestsellers, I Came All This Way To Meet You is Jamie's first memoir, a moving, candid, unexpectedly funny look at becoming grown-up-ish, stopping running, and how she quite literally wrote herself home. Then I thought, well, what happens if I make my happy place like my full-time place? And let's see what happens. Is it going to ruin it? And at least I thought I'd be like a little happier than I was. And I'm a lot happier than I was. A lot happier. Jamie joined me from New Orleans to tell me how she finally stopped moving being the daughter of a motherless mother, and how she was scarred by summer camp. She also talked about embracing the midlife move, why you don't always have to give people what they want just because they ask, and the life-changing impact of having a hysterectomy. Oh, and that neck thing? It's real. Firstly, thanks for coming on The Shift, Jamie. It's lovely to have you. It's lovely to come meet you finally after like Twitter chats. Why a memoir? Because you say several times in the book, which I loved, by the way, that stories are a place you go to escape and there isn't anywhere to hide in nonfiction. It's so true, um, unless you're writing about somebody else, I suppose. But, you know, I think I was just ready to tell these stories. And I feel like I'll probably never write another memoir again, although Never Say Never is a thing that I've officially learned. You know, I just, I felt like I was sort of old enough to tell the stories and to have enough perspective on them. I felt like there were a couple of stories that were the starting point for the book. And I thought I really need to have these out in the world. And I didn't think I could really publish them in a magazine or a newspaper or anything like that. And so I sort of started to construct a book around them. Yeah, there was no hiding from yourself. (laughs) And I thought I was going to write it and sort of be traveling and go back to it when I sold it. And I sold it in January 2020. And so it was very strange to have to actually like not only like be writing about myself, but really be stuck with myself in my house alone by myself for months at a time. But I think it ended up being I mean I don't really wish it on anyone you know like the experience that I had writing it but at least I had something to do (laughs) you know something to work on and like now I'm come out the other side and I don't know if I'm stronger or better or anything like that at all but I have a better understanding of myself which is probably a good starting point I'm kind of really about starting points for the rest of your life like I'm one of those people who wakes up every day and thinks well, today's a new day. Let's see what we can do today. It would have been tough enough sitting in one place, writing a book about stopping moving effectively. So you were writing that during lockdown. Yes. (laughs) Enforced. (laughs) Yeah, I thought I was going to like be on tour. I had a huge tour planned because I'd had a book that came out a couple months before I sold it. And so I usually end up touring for like a year or something like that, you know, in and out of Mm -hmm. home. Yeah, it was like, I was really there with myself, really there with myself. And I have a lot of friends who've written memoirs 
And so I was lucky because I could just sort of text them and ask them questions about their experiences or what advice they had to give. And one of the days the question was, when does this get easier? <laughs> and the answer What's was the like answer? A, a year after it comes out. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably true. When did yours come out? It was last week here, wasn't it? Was it the same in the States? Yeah, it was like maybe a two day difference or something like that. I think I may have got you at the worst time because I don't know whether this is your experience, but you get that run up where you're a bit anxious about how mm. people are going to respond. I found that worse with nonfiction than fiction. And now you're at that point where you've done, you know, a fair bit of talking about it and you must be getting to a point where you just think, please don't make me talk about this again. <laughs> Not yet. I think in about a week. I think the last event that I have virtually is 10 days from now or something like that. And then the two in-person events that I have are just in New Orleans and I think they'll be like a really good time. It was very stressful leading up to this moment though. Between Christmas and New Year's, my publisher's office was closed and it's COVID and it's gotten worse, obviously. And so I was just sitting there squirming in my house, eating potato chips. (laughs) (laughs) And excuse. I just want to say also that I was really grateful for the opportunity to write it, that I was really lucky to have that time to sit there and write it. It was truly an opportunity, right? Like Mm. I took it quite seriously and I am glad that I had friends that I could reach out to who could offer me advice. If I didn't grow as a person, I at least grew as a writer because it was a new experience. For you of all people, a lot of people have said to me that they feel like they've forgotten how to travel. Did you feel that? So I was just out. I had four flights and I had a couple of train rides and mostly people were behaving themselves in the travel world. It's not fun. I've had flight anxiety in the past and I really had done so much work to get through the flight anxiety. And then you like add this like extra layer of like you could catch a terrible disease while you're on a plane. So like it's come back a little bit and I've just been like working on trying to contend with that. But once I get somewhere, I'm very happy to be there. I'm very happy to see the world and travel is such an important part of my life as a artist and a creative person and then also as a human being. And I have met so many cool people in my travels and seen so many cool things and I get so inspired by it. So I'm ready to get out there again. I just think that the traveling like to a new city every other day, which is what I used to do when I was touring, I don't think that that's going to be of interest or a possibility to me anymore. That relentless touring. I mean, unless it's like a train, I don't mind a train. In the spring, I will be touring Germany and it'll be like a train every other day. I don't mind that. That's sort of fun and easy. As long as you learn how to pack well. But you were on the move for the best part of 25 years, weren't you? You must have packing down to an art form now. I packed too much on this last trip that I just took, but I was pretty close because I had to do like part of the trip in Florida and part of the trip in New York where it was like zero degrees out. So it was like 85 degrees to zero degrees. It's that old trick of like pack and then take out like one or two extra things when you're done. So that's about it. That's my trick is to like have an honest conversation with yourself. At the end of packing, go, you could survive without this, right? Lots of black, right? Yeah. Things that don't need ironing, that sort of thing. Are you a different person when you're on tour? I feel like I have to be nice all the time (laughs) and grateful and gracious all the time which in real life is harder to sustain or you don't necessarily feel obligated to do that. You have to show up on time. You have to, you know, answer questions about yourself, which you might not necessarily do, but also that sometimes that's not so bad. I like it because I get to meet people who are readers and other writers too. And that's a really great opportunity. You know, if you ask me that question 
three years ago, four years ago, I would, you know, might have a slightly different answer. This time I was really excited to be there because I hadn't been anywhere in so long. So for the listeners, can you tell us a little bit about the book in terms of, you know, your transition, if you like, from constant movement to settled? Is that the right word? I feel like I'm settled. When I wrote it, I was settled because I was forced to be settled. But I, you know, I've been here for six years and I'm not couch surfing anymore and I'm not bouncing around as much. And I have a home that when I go to the home, it's my home and all my stuff is here. And I don't have to like rent it out, which I used to have to do all the time and, you know, box things away and hide things and that sort of thing. Like it's all here and it's all mine and it's where I land. And so it makes me really happy. Um, I had a really good explanation of what the book was about the other day. And of course I've since forgotten it, but it is really about being in motion for a long time, starting from after I graduated from college. So that was 1993. So we're talking about really like 30 years or I guess 25 years until I settled down, though. You're right. Good math. You didn't math <laughs> <that> there. <laughs> I've had long to think about it. So impressed with your math skills. Who knew? Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's probably and, the first and last time anybody will ever say that to me. Good thing you're good math skills. Yeah. The thing was that I was always stable in a way as long as I was writing. So I could be anywhere and be writing. I don't want to say it's like one of the easiest or simplest art forms. Like it's quite complicated, obviously, to write a book or poem or anything like that. But in terms of what you need in order to write, like it's just a pen and paper. And you can do it anywhere. It's portable. And some people just do it in their heads. They don't even actually need to write it down. They can just sort of remember things. I'm not one of those people. Like I really appreciate having a pen and paper. So I could take that with me wherever I went. I could take that skill and that joy with me wherever I went. And I was curious and hungry, right? So there's so much that's going on in the book that's like me on tour when I was younger and and bouncing around to different cities and me traveling, you know, in, in Europe and elsewhere coming from the U.S., and me exploring things and also me trying to grow as an artist and build my career and things like that. So there's all these things that are sort of tied up into travel and being out there in the world and feeling okay as long as it was in support of my work. And then at some point I was ready, I think, to land land somewhere. And the book isn't so much about where I land until kind of the very end, as much as it is about the journey to get there. Maybe the next book will be about (laughs) being here, but I don't know. I feel very protective about writing about New Orleans. I want to be really careful about it. Not that I wasn't careful about writing about New York, but I also don't know this city in the same way as I knew New York because I lived there such a long time. And also the city is very layered in a different way. Yeah. So I think that's what it's about. I mean, it's about so many things, but it is really about, I think, being a writer and what I get out of being a writer and the safety and the security. And so to have also a home now of my own, you know, a small thousand square foot house with a backyard feels enormous to me coming from New York City, of course, only just adds to it, you know, only just adds to the feeling of safety in my life. But I think there's a line in the book where I say it was never the goal. Safety Mm. and security was never really the goal, but it is really nice to have it. Yeah, I think you say, you put it brilliantly, Oh, something like comfort, safety and ease were never my aesthetic. I just think it wasn't what I was focused on. I just really loved writing in books. Do you think like comfort and security, do you feel like they're not consistent with being, you know, a creative person? Did you feel like that? I just kind of grew up like in this like, you know, I like used to go see bands. I booked bands when I was in college and I, what being a writer meant felt like sort of like a little stuffier maybe at the time and more about being academic. Unless you were like, you know, into Kerouac, but I was never really into Kerouac or anything like that. But it felt like I was more interested in the like the road life and because I'm the daughter of a traveling salesperson, like he was always out Mm -hmm. on the road and my family and I used to take, you know, road trips and we'd drive places together and, and things like that. So it all sort of like 
fit together. It might be like a very Generation X kind of thing, admiring these musicians and yeah. the way they just sort of got out there on the on the road. I mean, I was never going to be in a band. I can't sing or play. I have no musical ability at all, but I like connected with what they were doing. I just felt like I could treat my career like they treated their career. I was really interested in, in what you had to say about your childhood, like the kind of influence of your father, you know, the traveling salesman, and but also that you were the daughter of a motherless mother. Yeah. On the face of it, being the daughter of a traveling salesman has influenced you more in terms of the bulk of your life. But how did being the daughter of a motherless mother influence you? Well, I think on both sides of it, even though they lived in the same house for 50 years, they're still alive, obviously, and they live in Florida now. But so there was like a, a stability to it. But there was maybe in the backdrop, like a, a wanderingness to both of them. They were both from the East Coast originally and had moved out there. But with my mother, it was like... Because her mother died when she was young, she didn't have like this role model in her life to teach her how to be a traditional girl in that kind of 1950s aesthetic. Like she didn't teach her how to put on makeup and she didn't teach her how to cook. And and so I didn't really learn how to do those things either. I wouldn't say that she came from like this like serious intellectual family. I think my grandfather was a lawyer, but there was a value to reading and writing and thinking. And her mother was reportedly a great letter writer. And my mother is a great writer in her business life. And and communicator in her personal life. And so that was kind of passed down to me. So the priority was not be a girl that boys will like, right? I'm speaking in like a very straight way here. I always feel like I should justify everything by saying this is not the default position. But, uh, you know, that wasn't a priority. It wasn't really important to me. We never had like a here's how to attract a man conversation or but it was like, you're really smart. This is great that you know how to read. I taught myself how to read when I was really young off the back of cereal boxes. I was always curious, inquisitive and writing stories. And my mother who was a teacher for a period of time was just delighted by that. And so the things that she taught me were conducive to growing as a writer and learning how to be a girl. And I say that in quotation marks came later and came awkwardly and came <laughs> differently, you know, but like, that's great. We all kind of have our different like understandings of what it means to be female and it's changed and that's wonderful. Yeah. I kind of feel like I never really pulled that off. If you know what I mean, those kind of, those little girls at school who were really pretty. When I was reading your your book, I definitely felt an affinity with some of the things you said because I felt very shaped by the fact that I wasn't one of those little girls. Yeah, sure. I think so. I think that that was like what people were encouraging us to be like. I didn't put this in the book. There was a couple of things that I like left out of the book that I ended up either writing about later outside of it. Like there's a piece that I just did for The Guardian where I wrote about my college professor who told me to give up writing, which was just not in the book. And then there was like another story that I don't think it's in the book, but you know, so I have this name, Jamie, which is like, could be me, you know, masculine or, or female. And so there was a summer camp that I went to and my mother kept my hair really short. I hated it. I really wanted long hair. So there was this day camp and the first day of day camp, it was like a big gymnasium was like held in the local school. And they said, we're going to call you up and we're going to separate you by the girls and the boys. And that's how the summer camp is going to be broken down. And nobody knew anybody else, right? Like it was like all just like, you know, kids from different schools and things like that. And they said, when we call your name, girls go to the right, boys go to the left. And because of my last name started with an A, I was the first one called. And so I went to the right and they it was like all over a microphone with a booming speaker and this like, you know, cavernous, you're on the wrong side, boys to the left. Oh, mortifying. It was so mortifying. And there wasn't the first time that I got called like a little boy, things like that, you know, and I wasn't developed yet. I mean, soon mm. enough, there'd just be boobs <laughs> everywhere. 
<laughs> but there wasn't anything I could have really done about it, except a little traumatizing at the time, probably just to be like embarrassed in that way to not feel like a little girl. But in the end, I like, I don't know, I've kind of always been the same. I've always been the same core being. There isn't anyone who's known these, you know, my entire life who doesn't say, you. wow, you seem really different now. Like it's just always been this with maybe different hair lengths and jeans sizes and things like that. But I mean, I can still picture it, you know, what the gymnasium looked like and everything like that. I mean, I think I knew even then I was just never going to really fit in like that. And anyone listening to this would like to hire me to write that essay. Yeah. <laughs> For a million dollars. <laughs> your publicist hasn't already leapt on that. No, no. Yeah. You know, because when you write a book, then they like ask you to come up with a bunch of like different essay ideas. And I have a couple left. I have a couple left. Saving them for a rainy day. You mentioned in the book, it's really interesting to me because I feel like I was in a similar situation about wondering what you would have been like or how it would have changed your life if you had felt pretty as a child. Yeah, I mean, it would have changed my focus, right? I think. I think so, yeah. Which is not to say that you can feel pretty as a child and not be a novelist or be anything that you want to be. But if it was prioritized for me, I think it would have been a different experience. That's really what I can say is like, if someone's always telling you you're smart, that's what you value about yourself. Yeah. That is fascinating to me because in the environment I grew up in, not my family, but my school, it was very much not valued. Being the smart kid was not valued in my school. So it was like, that was a thing that you needed to kind of keep under wraps because it almost made it worse. I mean, I don't know if it was valued that much in my school either. It was very much like a, we had like a champion state football team and a champion state soccer team, I think by senior year. I don't think it was really valued or cool to be smart, but it was like what I had. And I knew that it was going to like take me somewhere else. And that all I had to do was sort of get through this. You know, eventually I would find my, I had a feeling I would find my people eventually. My brother and I were talking about this because my niece is applying to these summer schools at universities. She's 16 now and she's, she's pretty cool and smart and like has it in her to like apply to these programs. My brother was asking me about my experience when I went to Cornell because I did a summer program before my senior year. And he said, what did it do for you? Did you find your people? I said, I don't even know if I found my people because I'm not really in touch with anyone. You know, this was so many years ago, but it just taught me that there were other smart people out there or the kind of people who would apply to go to a summer program, like who were like that nerdy, mm -hmm. like where their idea of a good time was to go and like study. Better get ahead of the game and like start studying more. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe like a turning point for me was going to that program and just being like, ah, I just got to make through one more year and then I'll be fine. Are you close to your family? Yeah, I just talked talk to my parents this morning. You know, they're in my book. My brother told me the other day, he, he just read it and he read it and he said that he was glad I was his sister. Oh, hey, that's nice. Yeah, I told him I was glad he was my brother, so. Were you worried about that? Were you worried about the people close to you reading it? Yeah, I mean, I told my mom that she didn't have to read it. She reads everything. I said, I don't know. You could just sit this one out and I'd be okay with it. I was like, <laughs> you don't have to talk about it with your friends because she's very much like on Facebook talking about stuff, bragging about stuff. You know, they live in a gated community in Florida. So like they know all their neighbors. Everyone's going to know all this stuff about my life. I was like, you could just pretend like it didn't happen and it would be fine. Like if you don't want to deal with it, because it's like personal stuff about her in there too. And I think her first take on it was like, that it was going to be hard for her to talk about it with people after she read it. And I was like, I, I don't, I don't know. I told you not to read it. 
<laughs> like that's your problem. After I said you could just like not read it and it would be okay. She made, you know, the adult step of reading it. And then after that, she said, I think it's going to be hard. And I said, I don't know. That's for you to figure out. I was like, again, you could just say, I don't want to talk about it with them because there are times that I say, I don't want to talk about things with people. And even if they don't like it, it's too bad. Like no one can make yeah, you talk about cool. something that you don't want to talk about, which is like a really important lesson to learn, not just as like a person who's presenting herself in the world in a public fashion, but like even just in your personal life too. You can just say no, but I think we're like used to saying, offering something, some sort of response, especially as women. Yeah. There's an expectation, isn't there, as a woman that you'll, and this feels hypocritical given that I always ask people loads of personal questions on this podcast, but I think there is a sense as a woman and as a writer that you're going to be asked to write personal essays that give something of yourself away. Yeah. I don't know. And I did for so long. So, and now I've done this memoir. And I think what's amazing to me is that I really feel like this is a memoir of like a younger woman. And so I feel like, you know, five years from now, if somebody reads this and wants to like talk to me about it, I'm going to be like, I'm 55 now or like thinks they know me. Although I, I've been told by my friends, you know, people who really know me really well, when they read it, they're like, oh, it's just like getting to know you. Like they felt like it was pretty accurate to who I was. But also they know what stuff I like left out, not in a dishonest way, but in a like protect other people kind of way, or you don't need this information or it's going to slow down the story or whatever it is. The only things that are sort of like, I don't want to say lies are like, you know, there's some characters I say in quotation marks, there's some people that appear in the book that are compressed, composite characters, like two or three people. Mm. Like there's a, a woman I have a conversation with in a bar who wants to pick my brain about being a writer. Yeah. And that's really like three people and more. I'm so glad you said that because I spent a good 15 minutes trying to work out who it was. Yeah, you can't. <laughs> I feel like there might be some people who might even think it's them, but then go, but that's not me because that's not true of me. And so it might confuse them. Um, so <laughs> that's like a composite character. There's a couple other people that are composite characters. There's some compressed timelines. Obviously, I don't remember every single piece of dialogue. Like I didn't write no, it down. But it's, you know, and then there's times where I imagine things about people. Like there's like a couple that like I see on a beach and they're having a bad vacation or I'm thinking they're yeah. having a bad vacation. I kind of go on this riff. And that was like me being like, well, I don't want to like completely lose my fictional writing skill. And also that's true to a fiction writer that like, even if you're out in the world in a nonfiction kind of way, you still feel fictional about the world, if that makes sense. So it's definitely an emotionally true book. And then, and it says it at the beginning of the book that I've compressed characters and other things like that. So. So what was the tipping point for you that made you, what was it? 45? 46, leave New York, move two thirds away across the country. Was that with Sid the dog or did you get Sid the dog when you moved to New Orleans? No, Sid was a New York dog and he was not happy there because it was crowded and noisy and, and now it's quieter and he knows all his neighbors and he gets treats wherever he goes and he's a little, little Mr. Fancy down here. I got him in 2013, I want to say. And then, and then we moved down here in 2016, 17. 17 was full time. So we've been down here this year will be six years since I've bought the house. Five years since I've been down here full time. So he's been down here and he really likes it. And actually like when I go away, there have been times where I thought I, I would take him with me. But when we drove down here, he hated the drive so much that I promised him that he never would have to do a drive like that ever again. So because it's a big deal, isn't it? You know, two thirds of the country effectively and 
Did you have a relationship with New Orleans already? Did you know people? I had been coming down here every winter for a couple of years. So I think I first came down in 2012 and then I did three winters here. And then I was like, well, I just, I really love it. And where am I going to be when I'm 50 was a big question for me because living in New York, I was never going to be able to like afford to buy a place. I was just hurtling money at rent and life there, such an expensive city as it is where you are too. And, uh, and I loved it here. And then I had that moment where I thought, well, what if I, you know, it was my happy place, right? It was where I went to go and write and hide and hang out and enjoy Mardi Gras season and all that kind of stuff. And then I thought, well, what happens if I make my happy place like my full-time place? And let's see what happens. Is it going to ruin it? And at least I thought I'd be like a little happier than I was. And I'm a lot happier than I was. A lot happier. So, you know, even though the city is like sinking (laughs) and there was a hurricane last fall or whatever. Just watching that on your Instagram was crazy. Yeah, it was really... um, not a great experience for me. Um, but also like solidified my relationship with the city in a way, because if that doesn't make you want to leave, nothing will. So, and it's not hard to keep in touch with people. You can zoom and Skype and chat and I don't even know you and you knew how I was doing on Twitter with yeah. her game. So like, yeah. so it's not really that hard um, to keep in touch with people. And I, traveled so much that I was always coming through the city and people love to visit New Orleans. So some people think it was kind of a risk, but I don't know. I think the real risk would have been staying where I was and riding out unhappiness. That is so interesting because we made a similar move up to Edinburgh, actually during the pandemic, but accidentally during the pandemic two years ago. And the things that you're describing that people said to you are exactly the things that people said to us, you know, what will you do? What if it's a mistake? You won't know anyone. How will you make friends? You know, and it was easy. It was so easy, I'm sure. And also like, none of us are so special that we came up with this idea to move somewhere, right? Like the whole world is just in motion all the time. So you can meet Um, people all the time. I don't know what New York's like, but you know, London, you know, people in your circle, but up here, people speak to you, you know, outside of that kind of very metropolitan environment, people are more friendly. Agree. Sit very friendly here. I've said hi to like three or four people when I watched my dog this morning. And then I went to the coffee shop and I ran into the woman who works in the wine shop. We were both buying beans from the coffee place at, you know, eight o'clock in the morning and chatted with her for a while. And, you know, she was like, what have you been up to? And we don't follow each other on Instagram. So we just had like a real person conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. Same with, you know, the guy works the coffee shop. So it's really easy and nobody seems to really want anything from me here other than, you know, just to pass the time of day, which is nice. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. So you're 51, is that right? I just turned 50. I just turned 50 in November. The internet is often wrong. How are you feeling about that? How are you finding 50? I think it's great. I don't know. It's cool. I feel like I don't have to pretend to be anything at all except for 50. And I still look pretty good. So hanging in there, keeping keeping things tight. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I think it's cool. I mean, I liked my 40s. You know, 20s were really hard. 30s were really hard. 40s, Mm -hmm. things got better. I really just made a list of things when I turned 50 about what I wanted to do with this decade. So I have so much satisfaction with like starting and finishing projects and figuring out what's important to me and how I want to spend my time. I have so much time, you know, I've centered my life around using my brain. So it's really just a question of what I want to do with my life more than anything else. If you're not responsible for kids, for example, you know, my mortgage is like manageable, like everything feels kind of manageable. Like I don't think I'm ever going to be like a super wealthy person or anything like that. I think I'm just going to like make my art, whatever that looks like. At some point, I'll probably want to retire, but I just, it's how I keep saying really is writing. 
So mm. anyway, being 50 is fine. Like I said, I don't have to be anything but, but me, which is nice. I was really interested when you say in the book that your gaze changed at 45. You were just talking about how you stopped viewing yourself through other people's eyes. Yeah. It was connected to a really great thing you said, actually, about how you first wore a bikini when you were 45. Kind of the reverse of Nora Ephron. Oh, yeah. When she's like hiding her neck and stuff like that. I have noticed the neck thing. I do have the neck thing now. I'm just thinking about like, you know... To go back to when we were talking about comfort and and ease and and like how that was never the goal, but it's nice when you get it. I think, I don't know if I ever had like comfort and ease with my flesh as a goal either because it wasn't really a priority, but then it just sort of shows up, I think, when you get older. I don't like this thing where like there's all this pressure. I don't think it probably reached over there, but like when we had the Super Bowl a couple years ago and J-Lo, who's like 50. Oh, it totally reached over here. And they're like, this is the new 50. And I was like, is it? (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, if it's your full-time job. Yes. I think it's just like about definitely like enjoying the sun on your skin, whatever that means, whatever that looks like for you. I mean, I still get fussy about, you know, my appearance or if I gain a little bit of weight. And my tour was so brief, but I still had pictures of me taken by strangers and posted on the internet, which I talk a little bit about in the book. And so they don't, they're not looking at your angles the way that you are looking at your angles. And I definitely have an awareness because I was, you know, trapped at home like everyone else for two years posting, you know, pictures of yourself on the internet, really just like as proof of life. And then you sort of start to study yourself and, you know, know what you look like and things like that. But I don't know. I just don't have very much to prove. So yeah, 45 was like, things got easier. I had my hysterectomy around then too. So just like not having my period anymore was really awesome and like made me feel differently about myself too. Not having the source of physical pain that I had. I was always like occupied with my body and fighting my body because I had fibroids. And then all of a sudden I didn't have to fight my body anymore. And so things I think released a little bit in that way too. You were reluctant, weren't you, to have the hysterectomy? Direct me in the first instance. Well, they don't really encourage it here if you're under 40, because like the American healthcare system is like, what if you want to get pregnant or something like that, right? Because they still impose that shit on women here. <laughs> I don't know about there. But mm. For me, it was like I had to unpack a lot of stuff that was related to it because there's like this sort of weird antiquated attachment to your uterus that like maybe it's like part of like who you are as a woman. Even though I wasn't going to have kids, I knew I wasn't going to have kids and was in pain, as I said, and um, it was affected me in so many negative ways. There was nothing positive about it. And I also like didn't have great health insurance and I didn't have the time to do it. And it would have been a recovery. Like there's just so many things that go along with doing it. And then all of a sudden it became like everything came together once. And I was like, let's cut this thing out of me immediately. (laughs) It was so great because I remember I went in and I had my period and then like I came out of out of surgery and it was gone. Like I remember talking to my gynecologist and being like, oh my God, you're a witch. That's magic. And she was like, no, that's literally science. She's like, I did not do anything magical there. I literally just cut this thing out of you that was like causing you that. So um, I wrote a piece about it once for the Times, uh, the Times in the US, the magazine. But it really was like about figuring out the things that weren't working anymore and getting rid of them and cutting them out of your life. Self-editing, figuring things out. I've gotten better at that. When you're young, you want to try everything and you should try everything. Mm-hmm. And then you have to learn what things work for you and don't work for you or like figure out how to break patterns, bad habits, things like that. The older you get, you learn. Hopefully you learn what works for you. I mean, it doesn't have to be a disaster when you change things. It doesn't have to be overly dramatic. You can just make decisions that are the right ones for you and move forward. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a moment, isn't it, as well? Just, yeah, I'm not the one of the young ones anymore. I feel very young in my spirit, though. Yeah. I felt the same for a really long time. 
I think being a creative person, you sort of transcend age. Although sometimes I talk to younger writers, I'm like, oh, that's a young person thing that you're going through right now. You know, this is my eighth book. So I'm like, oh, I've acquired knowledge along the way. Because every time I start a book, it's like starting over again, Mm -hmm. right? There's some tricks I've learned along the way. Whereas like a young person, it's just their very first time. And they're so smart now. They're so much smarter than we were when we were young, right? Just the fact that you grew up on the internet, you know so much more. And they just won't put up with any shit either. No, no, they're tough. But still, they still have a lot to learn. But also, I feel like I still have a lot to learn. I don't want to stop learning. So that feels like a good place to ask you the questions that I always ask. What's your emotional age? Oh my gosh, that's such a good question. I think about this sometimes. I feel like I was like 28 for a really long time until I was like 36. And then I was 36 for a really long time. I definitely don't know if I'm 50. I don't know yet. I don't know what my age is. I feel like I'm somewhere probably in my 40s. What do people usually say? Do they say their exact age? Oh, no. So many different answers. People almost always say younger. It's quite unusual for people to say older. A lot of people say in their 30s. Yeah, I think I'm in my 40s now. I definitely have made like the leap to 40s. But when I was like 16, I feel like I was 28. I feel like I was always in my 20s until I wasn't. Yeah, I don't think I was very good at being in my 20s. Can you give us a book recommendation, a book that's either had a really big impact on you or just that you've read lately and you loved? Well, I've read it before, but then I reread it, um, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, because I was in conversation with uh, with Disha Filia. I don't know if it's out, and I'm going to imagine it's out in the UK because it was so big here and it was a National Book Award nominee. I think it's coming, actually. It's a short story collection and it's, it's really excellent. And if you like kind of voicey story collections about women and food and religion and families and sex. What's much like? That's my blurb. (laughs) What advice would you give younger women? Gosh, I don't even know what their lives are like now. I mean, I just think it's important to like focus on figuring out what you want to do with your life on your own as opposed to with a partner. Like building something with a partner is great. And I am happy when people fall in love and find each other. But never don't forget that you have to you have to make your own way too. I'm digressing slightly, but I was really interested. I think I wrote it down that you said when you were a bit younger that you had not had partners, but you'd had lovers and collaborators. Gosh, that sounds pretentious. Did I really say that? Yeah, you did say that, yeah. (laughs) I mean, you have to remember that I've um, given it another read in the last couple of days. So um, I remember it better than you. (laughs) Oh, my words are going to be used against me. But that is true. I've had a couple of partners in my life you know, in the last 20 years or whatever it is. So I did write about one of my exes in the book from like a long time ago. And I messaged him that he was in it. And I'd written about him before here and there. And so I used some of that. And then some of it was new stuff. And I was like, I just want you to know, and I've changed your name and detail. Like I didn't say what you did for a living and all that kind of stuff. And he replied that he always supported me and supported my art and felt inspired by me and go, just go and do it. So he's really nice. He's a very nice person. He really was. He was the nicest person I ever was with. That's so decent. I know. They're not all bad. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Who is your old bird role model? I don't know. I feel like I I always think about Grace Paley because she at some point stopped writing and just became a political activist and helped people for many, many years and started foundations. And so I don't know. I want to keep writing, but the idea of helping people is important too. What's your superpower? Oh, like I used to be like mad at myself for not remembering people's names, but it's like my ability to like not remember people's names, like not remember like people who were mean to me, their names, or like not remember people who give me bad reviews. I used to be friends with this woman who I'm no longer friends with, and she was a writer and she was older than I was and had written more books than I had. She could tell you the name, the book, the publication, 
every bad review she'd ever gotten in order. And I was like, man, I can't remember. I cannot remember. I can just whitewash like anybody who, you know, not everybody, but mostly like people who like are are like that about me or like if I like met them at a party once and they were kind of rude, like two days later, I'm not going to remember who it was because you only have so much room in your brain for like people, right? Like I read somewhere recently that it was like, you only can remember 150 people at a time. I'd much rather remember the names of the people who are nice to me than the people who are my like, you know, mean to me or enemies or whatever. Like I don't want to give them any like headspace. So that is a superpower worth having. (laughs) You're not wasting all that resource on resentment and plotting your revenge. Um, And on that note, actually, how many fucks do you give? Oh, zero. (laughs) Right now, today, one, yeah. one week after my book comes out, definitely zero. <laughs> and I'm sitting here in the pitch black of Edinburgh and looking at the sunlight behind you. And oh, it's so nice and sunny here, but it's cold. Yeah. When you say cold, what do you mean? I think it's about 45 degrees here, which is cold. Oh, yeah, that is kind of cold. It's very cold for us, but it's sunny. So as long as it's sunny, it's not too bad. And I think it's over in a couple of days. It doesn't get very cold here. The houses are very drafty because they're designed for the heat. So it's good in the summer, but in the winter, you really feel it in your bones. Oh, so I'm not too jealous then. But all that (laughs) daylight, it got dark here at like four (laughs) o'clock. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review, and follow, because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to know more about my own experience of shifting, my book, The Shift, How I Lost and Found Myself After 40, and You Can Too, is out now in paperback. See you next time.